0: Watermelon Body by V. Key now. Read by Madeline Lambert. The man was not a watermelon, but the woman wasn't interested in his watermelonless body. She insisted that he was a watermelon. She wanted him to be a watermelon. She wanted badly for him to be a watermelon. The more he thought about it, about desiring her and fulfilling her dream, the more he wished that he could reshape his body into a watermelon. He knew he didn't look anything like a watermelon. Unlike a watermelon, his exterior surface was pale and light and yellow. The watermelon's skin is predominantly verdant and has a camouflaged outer garment similar to an army uniform. The watermelon could be drafted into the war in the Middle East if it wanted to. His interior, on the other hand, was more like the interior of the watermelon, red and filled with seeds. Nowadays, they make seedless, genetically modified watermelons, and when he asked her if she liked seedless watermelons, she shook her head so hard that he was scared that her neck would jackknife. Although there was a strong resemblance between the interior of the watermelon and the man, she recognized that his seeds were not dispersed equidistant from one another, as in the design of a perfect watermelon, but rather were located in one place in his body. She believed that sexually, there was no other way of looking at it, a watermelon was truly a perfectly designed man. Seeds dispersed throughout the body, his sexual belongings ubiquitously within reach. In other words, the woman found the body of a man with all the eggs in one basket as defective. Seeds should be scattered. If the watermelon man were to be attacked, he would not be vulnerable to infertility." Her logical conclusions about the male form he found were distasteful. He believed it took more courage to stash all the goods in one location to separate the funds in different accounts was confusing, distressful, even dangerous, but most importantly, it encouraged memory loss. It was impossible to keep track of all of them. She began to narrate to him about his watermelonness. she liked that he was bald heavy and was designed to explode she liked that he was round and that a thick whisker floated out of his top like a muscular tail she felt like he was an animal that though unable to walk could roll endlessly from one end of the world to the other all he needed was a gentle push she didn't mind being the apotheosis of that gentle push she loved the simplicity of his watermelonness there wasn't much to him he could be cut into many pieces Or left whole. His rind could be carved into watermelon esque architectures with unstable rooms and collapsible foundations. He would be carved into a flower. Basically, he could be anything she ever wanted him to be. She had always wanted to be with a black man. She knew that the watermelon was a black man, and he had been born in Africa. She knew the watermelon loved public transportation. She knew this much about him and much more. She was appalled. Her face dropped to the floor and could have dropped lower if it weren't for the floorboard, when he renounced his ancestry, the watermelonness and the blackness. Tell me, she asked him fervently and overwhelmingly, why are your seeds off-white when you were born in northern Africa? He didn't have an answer for her question. She asked a very good noetic and sound question. He didn't have any answers for her, he found that it was pointless to keep on denying himself before her. He didn't understand why he felt the need to validate what he was not. Perhaps he knew, clearly and deeply, with conviction if anyone else had asked him, what it was that he was not. He was more unclear about who he was. He began to think that it was the small-mindedness in him that encouraged him to weigh, to validate, to defend his position in society, and to alter her opinion about him. So what he thought. If she thinks I am a watermelon. What was so outrageous about that? Yet it offended him. It made her happy, and it did not negatively impact him socially or in the workforce. She didn't work with him. She was just a neighbor who grew watermelons in her garden for competition and leisure. She kept on saying that her six feet by four feet plot was a plantation. She wanted to enter the best watermelon competition in Delaware. She said that she was using him as a model for her watermelons. She found life and him unpredictable and exciting. He began to feel uncomfortable at an exponential rate around her. He thought that perhaps if he kept on confirming his watermelonness to her, she would want to have sex with him. Instead, she just wanted him there, so that he could exemplify the empirical performance and appearance of a watermelon, one that sounded like a watermelon and looked like a watermelon. He was something that could easily be plucked out of her tongue, For her, delirious pleasure and nothing more. He decidedly decided that he should have sex with something like her kind. The more he thought about it, standing there, a fence between his gardenless garden and her plantation, the more he wanted to fuck her. She was on her knees now, pushing the head of one watermelon aside from the dirt. She had taken out a toothbrush and was brushing the dirt off the head of the watermelon. She ran the bristles along the smooth, bald surface of it, She stroked it receptively and meditatively, as if she were running a comb through a bald lamb. She worked slowly, taking careful care of the watermelon, as if she were taking care of a neonatal goddess. He wished that she would treat him the same way, slowly and with great tenderness. He desired her and her treatment of the watermelon very badly. He dashed to his car, drove to a grocery store 1.7 miles away, and returned home with a watermelon. He laid the watermelon on the kitchen floor, took out a knife from the drawer, and carved an inch off one end of the watermelon. He pulled down his pants and his boxers. He plunged in. It didn't have the suction quality he had experienced from a woman. In fact, it was sloppy, like getting a wet kiss from a messy mouth. It was terribly disappointing. He knew his penis had gotten sugary, though not on high-fructose corn syrup. He knew the shatterable architecture of the watermelon would collapse. He knew the content inside of it would relax and expand like blood vessels, but he felt deflated emotionally and physically. He got up, dripping, and wiped himself with a paper towel. He knew there was no point to life now. Then fear began to drive him into irrational thoughts. He got on a computer and googled about watermelon pregnancy. He had no idea if a watermelon was capable of getting big. He hadn't gotten hard, but he knew there were cases where a drip of sperm from a flaccid penis could still motivate gravidity. He certainly didn't want progeny from the thing he had partially carved and placed on the floor. He grew sad after googling about the uterus-less watermelon. At first, he feared having a son or a daughter, and now he feared the opposite. He feared that he might never experience fatherhood. The neighbor didn't want to have sex with him. The neighbor believed that he was a watermelon. He remembered a fear once when he was eight years old. He had swallowed a grape seed. His mother told him that tomorrow a grape tree was going to grow in his stomach. She told him that drinking water would help nourish the grape tree into something big. He cried hard and didn't drink a drop of water. He tossed and turned in bed. When he felt pain, He thought it was the tree growing older and bigger. He didn't sleep a wink and was in a terrible state of mind. Now he had just had sex with a watermelon, and the fear of the pregnant watermelon grew large in his head. Even though he googled about it, even though the next day and the day after that the grape tree hadn't grown inside of him, an uncertain curtain of fuzziness in the sphere of reality prevented him from seeing what was true from what was untrue. He knew that a watermelon couldn't get pregnant, but what if, he thought, this watermelon was capable of that? He picked up the watermelon and put it in the freezer. He knew with certainty that nothing could grow from a frozen state. Everything stopped. Life stopped. Procreation stopped. If only birth control was as accessible as this, he would have solved population inflation and teen pregnancy. He would be a rich man, and he could be anything and be with any woman he wanted. He closed the freezer door and sat down on the kitchen table. He tapped his fingers on the table and gazed outside. The neighbor was nowhere in sight. He had to go to work the following day. There was nothing else to do. He could sit here forever. He got up, walked into the shower stall, removed his clothes, and got under the shower head. His sugar-coated penis was stuck to his boxers. Too bad it wasn't a post it note. He would have loved to sit on the spine of a page and linger on the vast, immovable streams of words. He knew he would have a better life there. He knew that on a bookshelf, in a textbook, in a manual, in an important literary work, in a writer's reading selection, his penis would be the world's greatest placeholder. But he wasn't a post it note, he wasn't a makeshift anything. He felt he was just a perverted man in a shower stall, trying to rinse his procreation device of all the great possibilities of being a useful object in an objective universe. Tomorrow he would be working on an assembly line of toothpaste tubes. He worked for Oral B. They gave him free toothpastes and toothbrushes. He had given some of them to the neighbor as a sex bribery device. The tactic didn't go very well at all. She had used the brush on the watermelon instead of her mouth. It had also been a gentle hint to her to brush her teeth more often. One time she leaned over the fence, her face so close to him that she was a blur, and whispered to him that she thought gardening was better than sex. Her breath stank. He remembered that the most. He thought that if he were to have sex with her, her mouth better smell right. She brushed the brush on the watermelon. Not only did the watermelon not have bad breath, it was completely hairless. He couldn't have been more appalled, bewildered, and sad. He had grown wiser now. He knew that God didn't invent women to want him. God invented women to want watermelons and gardening. He knew that the power of giving things and making suggestions did not always correlate with the intentions of the giver. He knew there was much sacrifice in controlling what he couldn't control. He knew better now. He ran soap over his hairy chest and thought, Too bad he wasn't a watermelon, but she had said that he was a watermelon. Suddenly, he had a really good idea and couldn't wait to finish his shower to execute what he had in mind. He got dressed and walked over to the neighbor and rang the doorbell. Silence. And then, peeking out from the slightly ajar door, her nose, she opened wider. In her hand, she held a knife. Would you like a slice of watermelon? I'm about to carve one, she asked him. Yes, please. Would you like to come in? Yes, of course. When he entered, she closed the door. When it was most convenient for her, she stabbed him once on his back, then twice, then three times, until he crumpled to the floor like a chair with one of the legs knocked out. And then, of course, he screamed. And then she began to carve him. She carved him in the same way he carved his own watermelon. With one of his eyes still open, she asked him, Would you like another slice of yourself? You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a non-profit, author-run publisher of Innovative Fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard The Watermelon Body by V. Key Now from her collection A Brief Alphabet of Torture, published by FC2 in 2017. Next, V. is joined by writer Brian Evanson, author of Song for the Unraveling of the World, for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation.
1: You know, one thing I love about this story is just the absurdity of it. That you you have this thing that you do and you take it and you run with it. And and I, I, maybe I can start by just asking you, did you know where this story was going to go when you started writing it?
2: Uh, no, I just had like, I was doing a lot of fruit series when I was writing a lot of fruit story. And this one was just the one on the watermelon instead of the papayas.
1: One thing that's really interesting to me about that story is, which is something that's interesting to me about a lot of your work, is that there are um, a lot of surprising shifts in it. Um, and so you go from the man, the woman wants a man to be a watermelon and the man wants to be one so as to be desired by her. And then eventually he kind of seems to accept that identity at the end, but it takes us to a place that's very strange, but there's also this odd moment with the post-it note in the middle, which is a real shift. I don't think that anyone sees coming, which is also very funny. And we get from there to the idea of the penis as a bookmark and, you know, it gets very strange. Um, and for, for me, one of the great things about your work is that even if you are cutting out stuff that doesn't work, you you still have these moments of intense surprise in the work. And that's one of the joys of reading you.
2: I just remember like being like watermelon when it's um, when the, the sugary aspect of it make it so sticky. Mm-hmm. And I noted and made like all oh, sticky notes, you know, and, yeah. and then it just um, I think it's just like a base. I think a lot of my work is based on association the association is more um, material based it's based on the textuality of a, of existence and i think like to heighten that textualness of it i think i make a lot of like abstract leaps that allows the readers to like enter that materiality if i just use straight language it doesn't have that same impact
1: yeah well, I, I think there's, yeah, there's something interesting about that. And, and I think that one of the differences between the writers that I find interesting and the writers who seem to be getting lots of sales through the New York Times or wherever um, is, is that they are thinking of language, not just as something that conveys information, but as something that's more associative, playful about rhythm and, and things like that, which I see again with your work kind of throughout whatever genre you're writing in.
2: And in your does too, but I think there's a, a, a psychological component to yours.
1: Mm.
2: Materiality of your work has, I, the, the material is psychology. And I think it, um, it lends uh, like a particular logic credence to it.
1: Yeah.
2: Like if logic could have, could be a material object, it could like, um, you can touch it like a cup of tea.
1: Yeah.
2: And you can actually touch logic and interact with it. And I think that's where, that's where I think that when I was in Ames, Iowa, when I picked up your book, A Few State, I was like, oh, this is somewhere that I could go and enter. Um, mm-hmm. And reading, it's a very logical experience. Um, it can be a psychological, but it's more logical than psychological. Um, and I think um, it allows me to enter that world much more easily with, um, a rather
1: device. Yeah, well, and and it's, I think what you're saying is, is something I agree with that, that, so for me, a big part of what I'm doing is trying to embody something and to make the language feel embodied. And, and that, you know, I think that, that the notion of something being substantial or there is, is, you know, it's, it's less abstract than, than, than that, that you want to have a kind of experience with language, which feels substantial in some ways. Um, can you remind me? I mean, did you begin with that first sentence? Did you just kind of start with that, or did you did you kind of start somewhere else?
2: Yeah, I just started. Um, a lot of the pieces that arrive to me arrive fully formed.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So as soon as I have the uh, kernel or the thought of it, then I sit down on my computer or my phone or whatever devices that I'm using at that moment to transcribe, and I just put it all at once, and then um, the editing process begins. Um
1: how long are you usually involved in the uh editing process?
2: Oh not very involved. I am very very fast. I just go down. What doesn't work, I just toss out. I I I don't have sentimental values with my own writing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just discard it as, you know, if this doesn't work, I just chop it off.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It's like the same way that woman that carved that woman's body, I just I just carved (laughs) the sorry out. Um, and I've learned that um, some Like from a lot of learning, like having written so many books thus far, I'm learning that some aspect of editing is a bit arbitrary. You know, Mm -hmm. often writers says, you know, I have like this infinite design, this ideal design for everything and everything, every word has to fit right. And I just don't um, subscribe to that kind of logic um, in terms of editing. I feel like if I had edited this, like the Waterman body, like maybe three years later, it would be a different story. I don't mm-hmm. think I would have the same um, alterations, the same control, the same um, uh, variables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think time is the primary um, conductor of editing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true. I, I When I look back at stories that I wrote, so my first book, um, Altman's Tongue, um, when it was reissued in paperback about eight or nine years after it first came out, I had to go back through and, and read it. And, you know, and I still like those stories, but I, they also felt like they were written by a different person to me.
2: Yeah. Like, uh, like maybe like, a. I also remember like the first book that, um, the first time that someone introduced me to your work was actually as a gift. Mm. They gifted to me the book. They said, Oh, I think you would love this person's, Writing, you know, and they send me few state, uh, not not few state, but um, that one with um, the cover that it's oh dark property.
1: Dark property. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense.
2: Um, it's that uh, mm-hmm. that was the first book introduction to um, to your work, and I was immediately drawn to the the, the cover. I, I think book covers, like
1: uh, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I, I love that cover. The the artist who did that is just just really amazing. Um, and that, that book's very hard to find now, but I'm I'm glad you and it's a very very strange book of mine too. Yeah. So I'm glad that you started. I have a
2: copy in Iowa. Mm.
1: Mm. I have
2: the copy in, in Iowa. So I'm I guess I'm one of those rare people that have actually a copy of that
1: book. Yeah, that's right. Well, so so um, yeah, I mean it's it's so funny how um, you know when you when you come to it, so that book too. It's there's something interesting about it, which is that that book was written in 1995. I couldn't find someone to publish it, so it didn't come out till about 2003, and then someone really, John Yao, uh, wanted to publish it and said, you know, I, I feel like if if I don't publish this, nobody else will. So, so it's always interesting to see how books kind of move, and so when that came out, it was not kind of exactly what I was writing at the time, so... And there's that, I think that's something that people don't understand a lot when, when they're publishing is that there's always a lag between, you know, when w- what you write and when it gets published. And so you usually have moved on to other things.
2: Yeah, it becomes obsolete. I tell people I don't want my books to become obsolete in my heart. Right. A lot of my books have become obsolete in my heart because yeah. they've written during my time at Brown
1: mm-hmm. and
2: earlier. And now they just, I well, just. I think-
1: you change and, and yeah. But I also think, I mean, there's something for readers that's not the case because readers come across the book, so how they come across them. And and it can feel very new and fresh to them, even if you're like, oh, yeah, well, that um, I haven't thought about that book for the last year and a half because even though it just came out, I've been working on these other things.
2: Right. So, yeah. what are you working on right
1: now, Brian? Um, I have a new collection that's coming out with Coffee House, which is uh, coming out in August called The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell. And so short story collection. Um, And then I'm, I'm trying to work on a novel, but um, I've had a hard time um, finding time to focus because of the pandemic. Oh, I see. Yeah. I have a novel that's a sequel to a book I wrote earlier called last days. um, And I've written about a third of it, Um, but it's, it's, I I need to find time to just finish it. So what about you? What, what are you working on? What are you doing?
2: I do a lot of collaboration right now.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. I like to, um, during the pandemic, I started learning Norwegian. Oh, you did? So I, I Yeah, I'm still learning, but mm. um, I co wrote a short story collection with another Norwegian mm. um, who's just an artist. She's not in the literary world. And so um, it's always written in Norwegian. So everything. Wow. <laughs> yeah, everything is in Norwegian. Um, and then I sort of Google translated back to English, or I, I wrote it in English part of it, and then Google translated some part of it mm-hmm. and now is a mesh up uh, translated version of a short story mm-hmm. short story collection really wild because I normally don't write in the literary pornographic genre like uh-huh. literary but porn it's like uh-huh. but it's like high language but you, you know like porn are boring language right it is like but this one is like um it's like fancy elises porn but not porn. it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it's not something that I would normally ever go out of my way to write, and so having the other person to sort of shape because my my collaborator, um, her style is very different from from mine, and she is is not like her primary language isn't like writing. Her primary no. language is carpentry. So to ask a carpenter to who does a lot of drawing to collaborate on. A language that I don't speak fluently in, but I'm learning to speak fluently in um, or write fluently in. And um, it's very interesting. So I've been doing a lot of collaborative projects with um, other people, co-writing books, too. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited if that collection ever comes out in the world, um, how the world res- is receptive to its, like, weirdness, yeah. you know? Um, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, so what, what, um, what was it because you had this person you're collaborating with that you decided to learn Norwegian or did that come separately?
2: Um, it I started out as playing Scrabble. I, w- I got addicted to playing Scrabble uh, during the pandemic. I had to t- figure out a way to kill time, you know? Yeah. And I, the, the first time that I became addicted to Scrabble was like two decades ago when I was really young. And um, my sister said, "V, if you ever value your your time, don't get into, you know, this addiction. And I <laughs> to block me from my own laptop uh, on my own computer, just block the website. So I couldn't play competitive Scrabble anymore. But the the pandemic rejuvenated that addiction. And, um, and my friend said, V, you know, I'm playing Scrabble. Come on, um, you know, download the app, play with me. And I, she wasn't into Scrabble, but I am, you know, like I got addicted very fast. Like, the next day. And so I ended up playing like 60 games or something a day or something like that. It was just like insane. I was playing like 60 different players. And, and then I would play with this person who just like was terrible at Scrabble. I mean, she's just, she just, and she even uh-huh. admits herself. She said, I'm such a terrible opponent, you know, like um, I said, um, and then she started talking to me in English, you know, she said, Oh, I loved your drawing. I started um, after my heart surgery. I I was in pain all the time. And Mm -hmm. to cope with my pain um, and the scar that this scar right here that just like generates so much um, physical pain, I start doing visual drawing to cope with it. And she fell in love with one of my drawings. And she said, then you know, um, who's this artist? And I said, oh, it's mine. And, and she said, oh, I also draw. So we exchanged and I learned that she's a carpenter. But her language, language skill is so limited and that it limited our conversation. And I'm like, I'm going to learn your language because um, yeah. because then we can have a proper conversation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's not like two children trying to learn like how to play blocks, you know? Yeah. So I actively sought out to learn, and now it's just like, uh, I have a deeper understanding of the language, and so our conversation is sophisticated now, so it's not like child place and it's all in Norwegian.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's very interesting, and it's I, I know some several people who have done this. There's a writer named Antoine Volodine who... Um, decided to learn Chinese um, fairly late in his life. He's still alive, but it was, you know, when he was in his 40s or 50s and, and, and did. And, and, you know, and, and it really does a couple of things. One is, is it changes the way in which you see the world. It, you know, the language is so influential in terms of just the way in which we think about things that, you know, it really has a big effect on you. Um, I, I want to talk just a little bit about just the variety of things that you do as a writer. Um, so you, you write things that could be called stories, you write things that are in a hybrid space, you write poetry, as you mentioned, you also do visual art. Um, and and maybe there are other things, you know, nonfiction and other things I'm not thinking of. Um, but how do you feel like all that kind of comes together or plays off one another? Do you feel like it's just certain projects call for certain things or
2: Yeah, it's just certain project like um they, they sort of like bounce off each other. So like, um, even uh, when I'm learning Norwegian, because of the way that language is born and how it um, emerged in the world, I, I think like its grammatical structure is so much simpler than Vietnamese or um, English or even Latin or, um, or Spanish. And so I'm learning like, and, and their words can be so long. Their words are, um, they can like attach. I'm trying to find, um,
1: yeah.
2: I'm trying to find where. Um,
1: I know what you mean. It's like, it's synthetic. So it's like the the words kind of stack into one larger word.
2: Yeah, they just stack. And the way they stack, it's almost like, it reminds me of calligraphy. And I think that's why I'm drawn to Norwegian because it's very calli- calligraphic. Mm-hmm. And drawn out and has this long, elegant mark, and it makes me think like, "Oh, this is a type of performance art, but as letters, you know
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and so I activate that part of my consciousness as a way to like, hey, I want to be in conversation with this um the materiality of this existence, and yeah. only to do so is to learn that language and to like move into. Um, at the beginning, it was like really confusing. Like a lot of the words, I didn't know. It was confusing. I was mixing up um, because of the way they do pluralization, and I would have memory amnesia. I would have amnesia about like when I when pluralization work, but and the order in which like uh, word order was really hard for me. Um, I still mess it up sometimes, but um, I really love the word. Um, um, I'm trying to find the, I think it might be on my table. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, this is the word for um, writing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good reading.
2: Yeah. And um, this means a uh, new apartment. Mm-hmm. But. Um, My favorite word, well, some of my favorite word in, um, um, Go ahead. It's the word for insomnia. Uh
1: Uh-huh.
2: Which I think it's like. um,
1: So how do you pronounce this?
2: I don't know the pronunciation. My Norwegian is more literary than verbal.
1: Right. Interesting. Yeah.
2: So I'm learning it as a way to write, not a way to talk.
1: Right, right, right.
2: Um, and so my my oral my oral skill
1: is very limited. Um,
2: That's
1: interesting. It's it's interesting because one, one of my favorite movies is is this movie Insomnia, which is a Swedish Norwegian movie, which got remade as an American movie. Yeah um you should check that movie out yeah kind of a, it's a noir i um, starring still in St. but really interesting so it's interesting too i mean to think about yeah the language is something that that can exist on the page as opposed to you know you, you, you when you're learning a language it may be that you you know you have a different relationship to it if you're you're learning learning it as something that's not not necessarily primarily oral um but also what you were saying Made me think a little bit about uh, Renee Gladman's uh, recent work and the way in which she's working with words that are becoming artistic pieces as well, where where the art and the word become the same thing.
2: Yeah, I'm very I'm very drawn to um, um, and I think it's um, it's like my love for for drawing as well comes out in the the, the writing.
1: Mm-hmm. Who are some of the writers? Uh, Oh yeah, go ahead and show.
2: Artists us. mean desire.
1: Uh huh. Um, um Yearning,
2: yearning, yearning. yearning, yearning.
1: Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, who 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 are some of the writers that you are interested in right right now? Who who are the people who are kind of, um, you know, motivating for you? Um, you know, collaborative or or you know, writers or artists that seem to be doing stuff that you find really interesting. Um, you
2: know, I. I'm. I'm not drawn to any writers. <laughs> 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 there's not a. There's not a single writer that I'm like. Oh, this person is going to like alter the evening gowns of my consciousness today or in the next ten years. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like I'm into people who are into sports, like mm-hmm. Rafael Nadal, you know, or mm-hmm. um, Patrick Mahomes, who is the um, quarterback. The way they move on court. The way they move um on the field and in court feels very especially Mahom who plays who the way he throws the ball feels very mental to me. Mm-hmm. I would study that the nature of his existence on the field as a way to see as an another entity of the literary uh, right. world. Um writers um I think especially the popular ones, um, bored me to death. So um, right. wh- whatever they're doing, uh, they shouldn't be doing, but, I, but it's making a lot of money. So. Um, uh,
1: well, I, I think I agree about the more popular writers. I, I find very few that I really like very much. Um, and it's interesting to think about um, other, other things besides writing as having analogies that can be useful to you as a writer that you can learn from the way in which someone moves their body. Um, or you can learn from watching sports. One of the great things about Cal Arts uh, teaching here is that I'm around um, people who are doing all other their arts. So artists, dancers, um, uh, experimental animators, and, and I always find that I find it very inspiring just seeing what they're doing, even though they're working with a very different medium. And you know, some are working with their own bodies, and and uh, some are working in film and other things. And and but but I can always find ways in which I can translate what they're doing into a kind of inspiration for my own art.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm gonna be reading six hundred books next year. Brian. How are you? Wow. So my um my life is probably going to be um um all on a buck for a while. So it's um it's a, something that I'm terrified to do for a long time. And now I'm going to I'm gonna push it. I remember the year I got into Brown, I um I read 173 point Uh, 75.3 books and then i think in 2016 i read like 300 books Mm -hmm. so i'm trying to like and then i got terrified i'm like oh i'm gonna do that in 2018 and then i got so terrified i'm like oh i'm not gonna do it it's not gonna happen and now i'm going to like tackle my fear yeah
1: Um,
2: even if it doesn't like work out and i don't end up meeting my goal
1: um yeah, I, I think that's good. I, I think yeah, um, I, I I find reading really rewarding. I try to read a little more than two hundred books a year, and generally do it. But it's my parents um, read more than that.
2: The parents?
1: Yeah, they they love to read.
2: Oh, they read more than you, Brian?
1: Oh yeah, much more than I do.
2: Oh wow, my God! How old are they?
1: Uh, they're in their their seventies, um, late seventies. But when I was a kid, we would go on vacation, and they would just sit. Um, we we drive to like a house on the beach and then we get out and then go and sit on the couch and read. And so it was, you started to wonder, why do we, why do we go to the beach if you're just going to be the whole time? Um, but now I kind of understand. I mean, I think that reading is just a wonderful way to kind of apprehend, um, you know, different consciousnesses and different worlds. And, and it really does, you know, it's a very, very productive thing, I think, for, for us.
2: Yeah, was there a book that you recommend that I put on that list of my 600 books?
1: Uh, I'll I'll have to think of of what might be good. Um, Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of good books I read this year, um, but I'll think of what might be an ideal one for you. Check out um, The Model by Robert Aikman, um, which is a very strange little book, but I think you might like it. Okay. Um, And there's a book called The Blizzard by... uh suddenly i'm forgetting his name the lizard the blizzard with a b oh
2: the blizzard not
1: the lizard no the lizard is probably good too but i don't know what book that would be um a a russian writer um sorokin i think um yeah vladimir sorokin um s-o-r-o-k-i-n both of those are books that are novels that i think have a kind of absurd sensibility that you would enjoy
2: well, what about you? Who are the writers that um, that is driving you wild right now?
1: Uh, you know, I, I that's a hard question. Um, I mean, the, the pandemic's been weird in terms of trying to read much. Well, the, there's a there's an Austra- Australian writer named Gerald Bernane who I really like. Right? I, I love, love. Oh, he's amazing. Okay. He's amazing.
2: I agree with you there.
1: Okay, so we found a writer that you like. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, mean, I, I like, but, you know, I admire, but it's not like, I agree with you. I, I agree with your taste.
1: Yeah, so so I really like him, and he's someone who's kind of kept my interest for a few years. Um, I mentioned Antoine Volodine earlier, and he's someone who really intrigues me. Um, but, you know, to be honest, I, I find myself reading less and less literary fiction. I read, I read some, and I read a lot of kind of small press and innovative fiction. Um, But I read very few big bestsellers, uh, mainly because I feel like I'm disappointed a lot. Um, And I've been reading a fair amount of genre fiction just because I'm I'm curious to see what's going on in that area. And I find it satisfying in a different way. Hmm,
2: Interesting. I have a question for you, Brian. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, like back in the 1830s, um, there's Gertrude Stein, there's James Versace, there is Beckett, and then there's, you know... Hemingway and a bunch of other people, you know, Virginia Woolf, you know, all in that area where they produce work that's incredibly experimental, that approaches the new, um, the the writing that is post-Victorian, more towards modernist and postmodernism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In our time, we are um, in our current, like, um, informational age with um, the Me Too movement and all this Um, Black Lives Matters, these literary figures um, becomes like lighthouses for the future of a generation. What are we creating that when future generations, like maybe 30 years or 40 years or 60 years from now, when they reflect on us and they talk about certain, what are we doing as a um, um, luminary or contemporary figures of our times? um, Mm -hmm. What you have to step back from um, the future to look back at yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's always so hard to say how people are going to look at a particular moment in time until quite a bit after the time. Um, but but what I would say, the thing that I think that's happened in, um, you know, just before the turn of the century and into the 21st century is... The thing I find most interesting are the are are the way in which boundaries that we normally saw as divisions are being crossed, and you know there's there's lots of work being kind of done in a hybrid space. There's lots of of of, of fiction that seems to take on aspects of poetry. Um, there's uh, um, you know as well. I think the thing I'm I'm invested in most right now is is just fiction that has you know one foot in genre and one foot in the literary. Um, and maybe a third foot somewhere else, who knows. Um, so so I think maybe that. It's like the the way in which we have these divisions that have kind of defined genres, defined how things are appropriate, to, you know, and we've started to see that already, you know, in terms of the collapse of high and low culture um, that you were getting in postmodernism, but I, I think it's kind of intensified in a kind of almost structural way with work that's going on now. So maybe that'd be what we remember. I I, I don't know. I'm not sure
2: hybrid um bending
1: yeah i mean i i think that you know it's as you start to cross pollinate things start to happen and new things start to happen and so so i think that there was this period when when you go back to the, the you know in 19th century there there's this idea of of every you know early 20th century people were publishing books of stories in which You know, there'd be one story that was a detective story, several literary stories, a romance, science fiction, and it's all kind of in one book, which is seen as a miscellany. And then we kind of moved away from that and and had the idea that, you know, you publish a book of science fiction and that's it, or you publish a literary book and that's it. And now I feel like, you know, we are starting to confuse those categories a little bit more. And I do think that you're kind of someone who's actively involved in that confusion, because one thing that's interesting about your work is that... um, I know I'm reading you um, even if I'm reading things that are very different by you, if that makes any sense. There's always a kind of distinctive quality to it that seems to transcend whether it's being considered poetry or fiction. And there's stuff that in your poetry, I think, oh, I could also see this as being published as fiction, for instance, or stuff in your fiction that you could publish as poetry.
2: Yeah, I guess... um... I think still the world still operates on a very binary um, place, you know, like one people, yeah. people certainty, you know.
1: I think that's true, yeah, and I, I think that, um, but I do think our notions of what certainty is are changing a little bit. Not fast enough, maybe.
0: <laughs> Thanks to Viki Now and Brian Evanson for joining us this week. Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn, engineered by Joelle Thibodeau, and read by me, Madeline Lambert. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.